1: Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Javier Mejia, from Stanford University. And today, I have the great pleasure to be with Thomas Piketty. Thomas is professor um, at the Ecole des Sotitude en Sciences Sociales and the Paris School of Economics. He's also the co-director of the World Equality Lab. He's quite famous. I know you know him, but I'm going to signal some of uh, his uh, New York Times bestsellers. Capital in the 21st Century and Capital and Ideology. And he's the author of a recently published book by Harvard University Press called A Brief History of Equality. We're gonna be talking with him about um, the book and his career. Thank you very much for being here with us, Thomas. Thanks for inviting me. So you're one of the best known um, economists in the world, but um, I don't know how many people know about you before in your career before um, capital in the 21st century. Why don't you tell us a bit about about you? What's your story? How did you end up becoming someone interested in inequality, interested in equality from an economic history perspective? Um, tell us a bit about that, please.
0: Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been interested in history, and I guess, you know, I... I I first studied mathematics in France because, you know, in my country there's a strong incentive to do uh, to do math when you're good at math. And but but basically, I was more interested in history from the beginning. So I went to economics as a way to sort of shift towards the social sciences. Uh, I I did my PhD in Paris and at LSE through a, a European doctoral program arrangement that existed at the time. Then I was hired as an assistant professor of economics at uh, MIT back in 1993. So this is, you know, almost 30 years ago. I was a baby, you know, I was 22 at the time and I was doing, you know, very mathematical uh, oriented uh, modeling. I knew nothing at all about economics and I I found it a bit strange, uh, you know, to be hired as an assistant professor. by MIT, as I as I didn't know anything, and uh, uh, you know, I was very honored. I was very interested by the years I spent in the US, but at, at the same time, it puzzled me a little bit about the discipline, the fact that you could, uh, you know, be very successful uh, just by proving maths maths theorem, and and uh, and and I think this partly contributed. Uh, And, you know, to, to, you know, my decision to shift to more historical uh, research, Uh, you know, I didn't want to spend uh, uh, all of my life uh, proving uh, math theorems uh, uh, about, uh, I mean, mathematics is beautiful, but then you should do real math and not, uh, not, I think, uh, uh, mathematics applied to economics. And, 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 and most importantly, you know, I realized that you had all this Historical uh, data coming from uh, uh, income tax, inheritance tax uh, for France, for many European countries, for the U.S., all over the world, which had never been really exploited in um, in a systematic manner, and so I started. Doing that, uh, you know, now more than twenty years ago, and uh, yeah, it became all a uh, uh, you know international comparative project which we now have in the World Inequality Database, which is a, a very collective uh, research project that has uh, uh, you know where we've been able to put together the effort of over one hundred researchers all over the world, and you know all the books I have written in a way, uh, you know, are are very much, uh, uh, you know, have been made possible by this collective uh, research program. to a large extent, you know, what I've been doing is to pursue a tradition of research which you can see in the French uh, school of economic and social history, trying to build historical series and income, wages, etc. I'm also very much influenced, of course, by the Anglo-Saxon uh, Tradition on uh, national accounts and uh, uh, historical study on income distribution that was pioneered by uh, Simon Kuznets and uh, in the US, Tony Atkinson in Britain. And, you know, I've been trying to push this uh, research agenda uh, further. Uh, so I've been, you know, at a personal level, I've, I've been back in Paris pretty soon after my stay at MIT. I mean, I enjoyed a lot uh, the US, but not sufficiently to shift country uh, permanently. And so I, I came back to, to 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 Paris and to this uh, school, the uh, Ecole des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales, where, you know, Brodel was the first president a long time ago and where the Annales School, uh, uh, you know, partly uh, developed. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, you know i've been developing this uh, this international uh, network of researchers uh, 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 with uh, m- many friends actually based in california uh, including Emmanuel ces and gabriel zuckman uh, at berkeley and you know with people from all over the world we've been uh, we've been pushing this agenda of you know building historical series on income and wealth inequality going back sometime you know, to the early 19th century or to the late 18th century, and uh, uh, offering uh, you know a broad historical comparative perspective on, on inequality. So this is what has uh, kept me busy for uh, for more than more than 20 years now.
1: Can I ask you something more about that? Because that's a very unconventional path for a scholar, I would say. And although you've been quite successful building a fantastic uh, and very interesting research agenda, I can imagine that at the time when you're making all these decisions of uh, leaving the US after being a a professor, deciding to move from a more formal um, type of research to one that it's more based on primary sources, Uh, also considering starting to write books, uh, probably at the expense of writing more articles. Like I'm trying to think about how did this feed into the pressure of the system? I don't know. Did you have some opposition from, uh, your mentors? How did you navigate that? I'm, I'm very curious about that.
0: You know, I guess, you know, I was very lucky in a way because, you know, because I had some very, you know, early uh, recognition from the from the discipline, you know, I was a young assistant prof at MIT, I had, you know, top journal publication in economics, you know, I could sort of afford you know, it was relatively easy for me to say, well, look, okay, now I want to calm down, to take a few years just to to write a big book, and and you know that's what I'm going to do. And I should say it's also the advantage of I think going back to to France and going back to a school of social sciences where uh, uh, colleagues in history, in sociology, in anthropology uh, actually value. You know, the kind of long-term project, in particular book writing, which economists, unfortunately, don't uh, always value a lot. And, you know, I think had I stayed at, at, in an economic department at the U.S. university, say at MIT, maybe, you know, I would not have done that because indeed the pressure, you know, to keep writing the, the kind of uh, short uh, articles at which you are good at, uh, is, is very strong and so uh, um, yeah you know partly for personal reason but also partly for intellectual reason uh, you know I was I was very happy to to return to 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 Europe and you know I think overall this has been uh, you know very beneficial.
1: That's great and it's also very inspiring for um, well for me in particular I'm Colombian and and I'm in the US but you know I experience also some of the interest and and aware of the um, of the pressures of, of the system for doing something that is not necessarily coherent with those those interests um but let's get now to to your book right so the book it's called a brief history of equality i think that already anticipates a lot of what it's um inside the book right so the first thing is that it's brief and i i, I said on twitter that we were gonna have this conversation. And someone said, a brief history, like P.K.T. doing a brief history, that doesn't sound to be very um, consistent with uh, your previous work, which is rather monumental, um, uh, to put it in a certain way. And the equality part of it, it's also interesting. Like Usually when you think about your subject of research, it's frequently framed as inequality, right? So why is this a brief history of equality and not... A long history of inequality for instance <laughs> Well,
0: first it's brief, you know, it's a, it's a two hundred fifty page book or so. So, you know, I I have made a lot of effort, I try as you know, to write a sort of concise version of You know what I wrote before. You know I realized. You know I've written three big books uh, of uh, uh, around 1,000 pages each on the history of the distribution of income and wealth. And uh, um, the first one was top incomes in France in the 20th century. That was published in 2001. Then capital in the 21st century in 2013. And finally capital and ideology in 2019. And you know these books were becoming bigger and bigger. You know the last one, capital and ideology is even 50% bigger than capital in the 21st century which was already very big and you know i realized that you know this was getting out of hand you know i i mean I, I don't regret that i wrote these books because you know i learned a lot by writing them and you know, i think it it makes sense for a number of purposes to write big books but you know i think i had maybe i've gone a bit too far in this direction and you know at some point i thought okay you have to to be more concise And, and to write something, you know, to read something, to write something that people can actually read, you know, in two or three days and not, you know, they don't need weeks and weeks and weeks to, to, to read it. That was, that's the first, uh, you know, difference between this book and the previous one. The second difference, which is maybe even more important is that, as you said, you know, I stress very much in this new book, uh, the optimistic dimension because you know, by by trying to summarize, you know what were really the most important findings of of my research. I, you know, I came to realize that in the end, you know, probably the most important conclusion is that we do observe a long run movement toward more equality, more equality in income, in wealth, but also more political equality, uh, more, uh, you know, gender equality, racial equality. You know, of course, this is still very much imperfect. But if you look at the, at the long run picture, uh, uh, starting uh, uh, sometime, you know, at the end of the 18th century, so, particular with the French Revolution, the US Revolution to some extent, you have a movement, you know, say between seventeen eighty and two thousand twenty, which goes toward more equality. So this is not a movement, you know, this is this does not happen just like this. You know, this comes from Political mobilization, sometimes from revolution, revolts, uh, uh, you know, trade union mobilization, uh, uh, elections, uh, social struggles, but you know, this really goes in this in this long run direction. This is a movement that starts, as I said, you know, with uh, uh, you know the, the end of aristocratic privileges, uh, in particular during the French Revolution, and and also the the slave revolt uh, in Saint Domingue in seventeen. 1991, which sort of marks the beginning of the end of slave and colonial societies. Now, of course, it then it takes a very long time. You know, You in the 19th century, you have the abolition of slavery, the the beginning of uh, the labor movement, of labor rights, the the rise of uh, male suffrage. And in the 20th century, you have the rise of female suffrage, you have independence war, you have the rise of social security, progressive taxation. Uh, You know, at the end of the 20th century, you have the the end of apartheid. Uh, You know, you have the uh, beginning of... uh, of a movement toward more gender equality, toward uh, against racial discrimination. And, you know, this movement toward more equality is, of course, continuing today. And you know we still we've made a lot of progress, but we still live. Uh, for instance, if you think of our uh, democratic uh, ideal, uh, you know I think we still live in uh, in societies where the power of money to influence uh, elections, to influence politics, to influence the media, is much bigger than what a true you know democratic societies uh, should look like. Uh, the concentration of wealth and properties is much bigger than what it should be. You know, it's not as extreme as one century ago or, or two centuries ago. So, you know, when I say there's a long run movement toward equality, you know, I'm not saying this to, to conclude, okay, everything is great, uh, we should just uh, be happy about everything, but rather to, to the conclusion is, okay, we should continue in this direction, and how are we going to continue in this direction? Well, you know, probably the first step is to better understand, you know, how... How this positive evolution toward more equality and more prosperity at the same time, because these two movements uh, of the modernization process, you know, really came together. How this happened, and you know, what can we learn from from this to 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 you know to continue uh,
1: in this uh, in this direction? Right. So, <clears> the <throat> so most of the forces that you describe um, in in what you just said are of, um, uh, let's say a national level, right? So it's basically societies that through different processes, decide to make reforms that make them more, more egalitarian, I guess. But in the book, you, um, uh, explore some dimension of inequality that is very interesting, which is, I guess, what you could call of international level, right? And you talk about slavery and about colonialism So, why don't you tell us a bit about that? What uh, has been the role of those type of international uh, institutional arrangements and inequality and how should we think about them in, in the present?
0: Yes, so you're right, you know, slavery and and colonialism, you know, played a major role in in the the process of industrialization and and more generally, you know, in the process of wealth creation. You know, the Western countries uh, developed by, uh, 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 you know, organizing the world economic system uh, in, in a particular way with a specific form of division of labor, uh, uh, exploitation of natural resources. You know, at the eve of uh, of the U.S. Civil War, uh, uh, nearly three quarters of the cotton that was used in uh, the manufacturing industry in Northeast United States, but also in Britain, but also in the rest of Europe came from, uh, you know, the plantation, the slavery plantation of U.S. South. So, uh, you know, this is not saying that, that in Industrialization could not happen without slavery. You know, you can imagine another trajectory with a more uh, equitable uh, uh, labor regime, a, a different distribution of of uh, of uh, power, a different distribution of income. But you know, this requires some imagination, and this requires a different uh, uh, power, uh, 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 you know, situation, a different. Uh, power relation, you know, at the, at the global level between, you know, the different forces at play. So in any case, this is. The trajectory from which we come—you uh, know—none of us today, of course, is responsible for for this uh, trajectory. But we are all uh, individually responsible for uh, deciding to take this into account or not in in our analysis of the of the, of the modern world. And, and so, in my book, for instance, you know, I, I talk about the issue of uh, reparation, which you know I think is an important issue that is not going to go away. Uh, like this. So, for instance, you know, in the case of Haiti, uh, which uh, which was the first, uh, you know, the first slave revolt in Saint-Domingue uh, at the time of the French Revolution gave rise to the Republic of Haiti, uh, except that the French state uh, in 1825 uh, uh, forced Haiti uh, in order to, you know, recognize the independence of Haiti. Haiti had to pay to France, you know, the, an enormous uh, uh, war tribute, so to speak, which was the equivalent of three years of GDP, of output of IT at the time, in order to compensate uh, the French uh, slave owners for their loss of property. Now, of course, this was impossible to repay uh, in one year. So the French bankers, you know, came in and and proposed uh, generously to to refinance uh, this debt with uh, enormous interest rate, of course. And Haiti ended up, ended up repaying. This debt, you know, from 1825 up until the 1950s, you know, you have payment from Haiti to the Bank of France until 1957. Uh, I mean, it's a long story. Some of the debt was restored to U.S. bankers in the interwar period. Anyway, but to, to make a, short, a long story short, you know, there is this very well documented. Uh, payment uh, uh, you know uh, from from Haiti to france which basically the money was used to compensate french slave owners for their loss of property now what do you do with this kind of history you know when you are today in 2022 it's you know it's always complicated to to set the the right system of reparation you know i make proposal on uh, the book on this specific case, and I argue that uh, that France should repay you know the equivalent of maybe 30 billion uh, uh, euros or dollars of today to Haiti. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying I know the exact formula to, to set the, the right number, etc. You know, this has to come from uh, you know democratic uh, deliberation and decision making process, and you know it's certainly very complicated. But uh, it's too simple. Uh, to say, okay, this is a long time ago, we should just forget about it and we don't care about it. Because you know, these payments are very well documented and took place until the 1950s. And you know, there are expropriation and various injustices that took place, you know, during World War II or even sometime during World War One, which we are still compensating today. And rightly so. And, and, you know, in my country, in France, you had to wait until, uh, 1999. So a little more than 20 years ago to have a new commission to look at the uh, Jewish expropriation during World War II and to set up reparation. Now, if you tell, uh, Haiti, well, in your case, you know, you had payments that were made in 1950, in, until the 1950s to compensate French slave owners for their loss of property. And, and, and we're not going to do anything. And, you know, this is too old. And, you know, you're putting yourself in a very complicated situation when it comes to, uh, you know, constructing norms of justice that are universal and which look universal and which are universal. So, Let me make, be very clear. You know, we are not going to solve. All the problem of the world uh, today with reparation. You know, we need to look at the future. And you know, in my book, in my work, I look at uh, you know a structural transformation of the international tax system today, so that uh, poor countries, you know, including Haiti, including countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, have a decent share of tax revenue coming from corporate taxation. So you know, we have to look at the future. We cannot just look at reparation. But what I argue is that we need to do both. You know, if you don't, uh, you know, do something about past injustices in a way that is fair, or at least that tries to treat the different injustices of the past in a, in a way that is, you know, more or less equitable and, and more or less consistent, it is going to be very difficult to, to you know, to look at the future and to develop universal uh, 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 institutions to favour redistribution. You know, when I propose, for instance, you know, minimum inheritance for all, I I don't propose to look as to whether your ancestors were slaves or slave owners or white or black or whatever. You know, you, if you have universal health care, you know, it should be universal. Minimum inheritance it should be universal. So you know, I favour universal policy to reduce inequality. But at the same time, there are also you know reparations for specific injustices of the past that also need to be to be taken seriously and you know of course it's a difficult articulation to try to care about you know both aspects and uh, but you know I, you know I, and that's why you know we we have difficulties sometimes making progress in in the direction of equality but you know, at the end of the day, I think this is the only way, and you know, I think it's possible. I think through democratic deliberation, I think we, you know, we can find uh, we can find uh, our uh, our way. And you know, in this example of IT and you know post-colonial reparation, in my case, it took me a long time and a lot of research, you know, to realize uh, uh, that this is the way things. Took place and, 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 you know, this is uh, the way we should try to address uh, this legacy in, because this is typically, this is not part of the curriculum. You know, I think uh, this is not part of what you are being uh, taught at school. Uh, uh, You know, I grew up in France in the 1970s. uh, So this was just a decade after decolonization or 10, 20 years after decolonization. But, uh, you know, in, in my country, um, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, the way children were taught about history at school was as if you know colonial empires never existed. You know it was, and I guess you know partly because the country was, you know, wanted to forget this past. You know, just like in the U.S., people want to forget the past of segregation, etc. But you know, if you want to build another future, sometimes you have to confront this legacy, and uh, and and you know that's actually you know that's going to be difficult. But in the end this is going to facilitate the construction of, uh, of
1: another world and a more equal future. Fantastic, fantastic. Let me ask you one final question that I ask all my guests, which is why writing a book? Uh, why not transmitting your ideas in a different way? Like? Like an article for a journal, for instance, or I know that you also write op-eds and so on, but like why investing so many months writing a book.
0: Yeah, no, I, you know, I write all the formats, you know, I write very short ed uh, you know, one page in Le Monde uh, every, um, every, every month. Uh, you know, I go on radio uh, every Friday morning to have, a, you know, 15 minute uh, uh, debates about uh, economic policies, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, which is listened by four million people uh, on you know, and, and French radio every, every Friday. Uh, 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 at the same time, I write 30-page, 40-page uh, articles for uh, academic journals. And yes, I care even more about books. You know, I think books uh, is, to me, the only format where you can really develop uh, a fully articulated thought. L- let me say this writing books is the only time when I feel I am really trying to think hard about a problem. You know, as long as you are not confronted to book writing, as long as you can just talk and talk and talk, or you can write a a one-page article or talk for 15 minutes, or or even write a 30 or 40-page article, you are not really confronted to the difficult uh, question. And, And I think to me, it's only you know. I feel it's really only by writing books that I have tried to come with sensible answers, you know, I, I, to to big questions. And I'm you know I'm not claiming the answers I I come with are. Fully satisfactory, you know, I keep uh, changing my mind and making progress about these, uh, these big questions. You know, I spend a lot of time reading what other people uh, write, talking to people. And this makes me always, you know, come to a, you know, to a slightly different position and evolve. But at the end of the day, it's only, uh, in the format of book writing that uh, I, I, I feel we can, you can develop a fully articulated uh, reasoning and,
1: and thought about uh, the about question. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you for writing this fascinating book and thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to us.
0: Thanks a lot, Ravier.